Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the southernmost point of Dorne to the lands of always winter, to what is west of west and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk, the Game of Thrones rewatch, the deep dive into the themes, lessons, and moments make this show stay in our hearts. That's what we're doing here today. Hey, everybody. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to create gravitas behind that. Who doesn't love gravitas? We are going to be discussing episode four of season one. It's just me today. We're discussing cripples, bastards, and broken things. Let's begin and dive on into what we have here. Hello, hello, we got this in a podcast form. You can also watch along on YouTube or, hey, if you're Daisy, you'll do both because that will help out the podcast feed. Uh, give us a like on YouTube. Do all that uh, liking and subscribing and sharing. I've been in the YouTube, YouTube game long enough on the other side of things, producing other things. Now this is me, it's me on my channel, small but mighty. This, my YouTube channel is a... Is a is a, is a crippled bastard and broken thing, too. Let's dive into this episode here. Like I said, we are going into uh, Season 1, Episode 4. And this episode is a very... I mean, I'll say, I think it's a very, very important episode. I think it is um, one of the ones that starts to really turn the show... Um, into detective stories, mysteries... Revelations that we want, and for better or worse, it takes a show and starts pulling you in. And I think that's one of the things I, I take away from watching, rewatching this episode all these years later. Like, oh yeah, I remember watching this. The original air date was May eighth, two thousand eleven. Another lifetime ago. And this is the one. All the themes and lessons and all the things we're going to discuss today out the window. I didn't care about that. I care about what's. What's Ned going to do that he's found Robert's bastard? What does that mean? Who's going to solve this? I think I have a hunch that something's not in the up and up with, with Joffrey uh, and, and Robert, right? I mean, Cersei and, and, and Jamie, that's, that's, that's their kid, right? Like, this is, who's, oh my God, Ned's our hero and he's going to save the day. That was me on May 8, 2011. This was directed by Brian Kirk and the writer is Brian Cogman. This is, again, four episodes into season one and Cogman 
was originally hired as a writer's assistant, kind of tracking all the stuff, and he just knew the Lord. He was kind of the official lore, keeper of the lore. Um, the show and the books, though separate and telling the same but different versions of the story, you have to get all that lore right. And Cogman was the guy. He was keeping track of it. He was uh, saying, hey, this is what you know you can use for this character. This is what you can reference. And even some of the stuff they created. There there are brand new, created for the show, only dragons revealed in this episode in the Viserys and Dorea bath scene. Cogman had, uh, you know, he'd be that kind of guy, something like that. But I love the story, reading about uh, Cogman. Um, getting um, bumped up to writer for this one. Uh, David and Dan just kind of came to him and said, hey, uh, and they were shooting, I think they were in post-production on the pilot, Cogman writes. Uh, and the, they came to him and said, do you mind just putting together this episode, write a treatment? You know you know these characters better than anyone. And there's a lot of lore in these episodes, a lot of references to things in the past. So he puts it all together and they say, great, that's the episode, that's episode four. And it works. And this is one of... Um, this is one of the more memorable episodes with some great scenes. Some added on after the show had been shot. They went back and kind of, oh, we need to fill some time. The episode kind of came in a little short. And some great stuff. So Brian Cogman is the writer, cinematographer, Marco Pontacorvo, and editing Francis Parker. They did episode three as well. One of the interesting notes about this episode is all the main cast was present. I believe, I didn't have uh, that note in front of me, like 19 of the main cast all in this episode that hadn't happened before, and it doesn't happen often if it happens at all again. You know, it's it's one of those things. This is truly an ensemble show with big stars. Certainly each season has leads, uh, but uh, this is an ensemble, and this is the ensemble is out to play in this episode. Let's dive in. What we do here on this show, Casterly Talk, formerly Daily Thrones, is really discuss the themes and lessons. Again, for those... Uh, who've been following along old news, but for new folks checking in, I, I just think it's important to really go back and we're going to do a rewatch. Let's look at this show and why we love it. Cause there's surface level things. And some of that is pretty people doing ugly things and dragons uh, and magic and castles and swords and all those things that, you know, we just all kind of like, and none of that is wrong. But I really think for those that got pulled in by this show and, the, yes, the books, but we're talking mostly about the show here, the general audience, the, the, the large amount of people that came into this story from the show. And none of us, and I'm one of them. I'd heard about the books, never read them until season one comes along, and now I'm in. And I have no shame in that. Don't let anyone ever shame you for that. Uh, we celebrate those that read the books from the beginning. Rachel Cushing is someone uh, who fits in that category. And I celebrate those who still, even though I love the show, have yet to read the books. Maybe one day will. I do I do recommend it. It will definitely increase your knowledge of what's happening on the screen and your appreciation. And at times it will frustrate you. There was some news this week. Uh, I think uh, we can't skip past that before we really dive into the episode. It's in the upcoming book that's kind of uh, the inside story, the official inside story of, of the making of series. I'm really excited about that. I think James Hibbert of EW uh, is the author on that one. And they've been re releasing little uh, blips from it to get you all excited. And they talked about, uh, they had uh, Benny and Weiss talking about why they didn't include Lady Stoneheart. And that's one of the things that I'm always like, yeah, you know, I, I still I still think I might want that. But I, I actually, they have like a three-point kind of plan, the reason why. That uh, a lot of it is just, you know, we knew 
things that were going to happen in the books related to Lady Stoneheart that they don't want to say even now in this interview, in this book? Because the books aren't out, they don't want to spoil it. So we knew some things, and we knew we weren't going to go there with some of the characters that might be intertwined with Lady Stoneheart. So it'd be a big sea change. It'd be a problem right away, the butterfly effect and, and full effect there. And then, uh, two, and, 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 and I, I forget who it was, Benny Alpha Weiss says it, says it pretty plainly, and I agree. Like, that's one of the best scene, scenes in the book. Like, when you get to that and the, and the reveal of Lady Stoneheart, you're, you, it's like you drop the book. You're like, unbelievable. Didn't see that coming. Wow. It's great. And that's why, again, if you're out there and you haven't read the books, take the time. It's, it's, it's work. <laughs> it's work. You might have to take some notes, but it's work and it's worth it. And that, that reveal is absolutely one of the things that makes reading the books so, so worth it. But I agree that it's, if you know that you can't use the character the way maybe George is going to use the character, and then you have to do something dramatically different, then just wanting to see that reveal on, on screen isn't enough to do it for the story you're telling. This is why I've really lately been emphasizing that they are the same story told in different ways, and that's okay. We're, we accept that more with our movies that are adaptations of books. Some people don't. I know some people are still very upset at Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Hashtag Tom Bombadil for life. I get it. The elves don't show up at the two towers. I get it. I am a big Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fan. I love the 2005 movie. Douglas Adams had a hand in it, but there's some changes. It's also more accurate than I think people give it credit for, but I'm protective. I'm protective. I'm such a fan of Robotech and the movie that they're always trying to get the movie version of Robotech out. I'm going to be first in line to watch it and first in line to be like, All right, well, that didn't really, uh, that, that didn't necessarily happen. That's not the story I am familiar with. It's just our nature. I am one of the people that does does still think, gosh, if you could pull have pulled off Lady Stoneheart, what a reveal. But one of the one of the reasons they said, in addition to the ones I talked about here, is they felt for their story that they had the ending they wanted for Catelyn Stark. They didn't want to take away from that. And also Michelle Fairley just put it all out in her in the red wedding, in her destiny, in the moment. And the reveal might have cheapened that. And I agree with that from a storytelling and producing standpoint. As a fan, no, I would have enjoyed it. 100%. I would not have, if, if, if Lady Stoneheart was revealed, I would not have been, well, I mean, that just totally undercuts the Red Wedding. No, I wouldn't. And I guarantee most people wouldn't. But from a, a writer, which I, which I am, uh, and, 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 and understanding the production process and the producing process and the storytelling process, I can get behind that reason. The other reason is, again, they knew... Um, they knew um, that um, they knew that uh, uh, they were going to be resurrecting some folks. That uh, you know, Jon Snow being one of them. Uh, they knew uh, you know, Beric Dondarrion. There was going to be people dying and coming back to life, and maybe this was a bridge too far, one too many. Especially considering they didn't have the Jon Snow one was very needed. Dondarrion on a lesser level needed. So for what it's worth, it's one of those asked and answered situations. They were asked, they've given their definitive answer, and I and I understand it. I, I agree for the most part. Still probably would have wanted to see Lady Stoneheart, but again, that's one of those things that's great for the moment, but maybe not great for their story. And that's also again why we go into the themes, into the whys. 
of Game of Thrones. So let's keep doing that here. Uh, we are going to take uh, this dive into the big themes here of uh, episode four, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. And I got to say, of all the episodes so far, this might be just the simplest one to dive into. There's always a lot of layers, a lot of things, and you have to watch a scene and really kind of, well, what's the connection to the bigger theme? Hear me out here. I think that this just might be the theme for the entire series, that being Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. I, I think it's this is the show. This is the story. George R. R. Martin is always kind of interested in those, I mean, underdogs doesn't even cut it, but he's interested in what Tyrion says here. He has a, a tender heart for the cripples, bastards, and broken things. But this is why I think it works for the series. I think what this episode puts out is that it's everyone. And it's all of us. We put these labels to it. Bran is a cripple. And Tyrion will say, own that, own that. That's what you are. I'm a dwarf. I own that. That's what, they are, what I am. That's, that's his moment in episode one. Jon Snow, you're a bastard. At least you think you are. Um, but it's the broken things that just really, when you really look at it, it's everyone in this series. It's everyone dealing with past trauma, truce, all that stuff, which is also, I think, one of the themes of this specific episode things that keep coming up time and time again, facing our truths and facing the truths. Trauma, We Rachel and I talked about it, and yes, Rachel will be back. Andres joining soon, Lon Harris joining soon, and other special guests. I always feel I over-apologize for just me being here, but uh, <laughs> schedule and budget-wise, it's just sometimes the way it works out, kids. But uh, I, I definitely miss the inside of everyone else, especially Rachel, who's been just, uh, first episode, just really digging into some great themes, especially as they relate to Danny and Sansa. So uh, I, I think we've discussed before, there is a lot of trauma being dealt with and how you deal with it. And so it's going to come back up again, especially season one. It's laying that groundwork. But I think it all, when you start even looking ahead in the series, and I think it all comes back to everyone on this show is in their own way, a cripple, a bastard, and broken thing. In their own way, a lot of it in motions there. And this episode has a lot of facing our truce. And going to that theme of the, this being a tale of, of broken things, I also think this puts this this episode puts kind of a fine point on the idea that this series is is and, and again part of George's writing is this is a series about the lords and ladies of high houses having to look down over their castle walls at those below. Now, do we spend a ton of time with the small folk? Do we sip bowls of brown with them down in Flea Bottom? We see them. We work through them. We, we, we are still dealing with those lords and ladies and kings and queens and princes and princesses, as Cersei would say. So don't get me wrong. But their actions affect those outside their walls, and then they are affected by them. I think of Daenerys Targaryen. I think of her in this episode. We, we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit. What she hears about the people over there. And George is... Georgia says it. I mean, I guess we can just dive into it now. Danny, Danny is saying, you know, Illyrio has said, has told Viserys, I've heard him say, I've been told, like, they they hang secret flags uh, for Targaryens over there. They light candles for us. And, you know, Jorah lays it online. It's one of the key sentences of the entire show. Jorah saying, the common people pray for rain, health, and a summer that never ends. They don't care what games the high lords play. They don't. They don't. But then it affects them. And I think 
it does in turn infect our stars, our lords and ladies, if you will. I'm using that in a general sense. Danny is affected by it. What she says right here in this episode, I hear, I hear tell. She's not saying it naively. She, I think she already has a hunch just looking at Viserys. I don't know if they're going to be rooting for this guy. And even if they are, they might see him and eh, maybe not want to root for him. She's not speaking out of a, a total naive spot when she talks to Jorah here. I, I've always taken that as her going, you know, I hear, I hear this tale. I don't know about that. And Jorah kind of confirms it. And what happens when she gets over there? There might be some people might be happy. She has some allies that she ends up working with. But there isn't this big, giant welcoming party. And I'm not just talking about Dragonstone. I'm talking about Westeros. There isn't this, like, great, the queen we've been secretly lighting candles for. We, we thought it would be her brother. It's her. doesn't matter. It's a Targaryen, and we're happy. She brought her Dothraki horde. They're great. Welcome them. So what Jorah's saying is very true. And I still think that fuels back in this idea that this is the, the lords and ladies of those high houses having to look over their castle walls. Definitely would have helped Joffrey in the, in the season two flea bottom riots there. So um, from there, let's go into this idea of uh, the, uh, what keeps popping up in this episode. And this is what I love. And I always say this, and, and uh, I want everyone, especially if you're relatively new to this rewatch, I'm not speaking from a point of, of uh, being an expert on, on everything going on in here. I'm, I'm speaking of someone who just loves watching these episodes and finding the connective thread in each individual episode. And when you do that, when you start engaging with what's been on, uh, put on the screen for you there, these themes do start coming up. And sometimes they just come, out, come up naturally. It's just the flow of the story. Um, sometimes it's very intentional by the creators. But a lot of times the, the actors are making choices, the writers are making choices, the directors, the editors editing very important in how to tell these stories they're making the choices that fuel us and one that just kept coming up this this idea of if the series is truly about cripples bastards and broken things focusing on broken things a lot of it comes from again this facing uh the truth facing uh who you are and uh the first one you know in a little bit later as always we'll get into some of those moments that uh that mean more um uh, mean more now that we have the whole story behind us. I love those, big and small. But I, I right from the start, Theon and, and Tyrion uh, discussing. Theon, who knows his truth. He knows the truth and maybe doesn't want that to be the truth, as I think we learn later on. He is a Greyjoy. He doesn't feel he's a Stark. We got the great um, tragic speech to, to Ramsay in, uh, in the... Um, in the in the in the in the, in the as they go back into the castle uh, into I was going to say the sewage but I guess maybe technically might have been but in, in uh, down beneath the castle later on um, in 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 the show we got that great speech about uh, you know uh, Ned Stark was his real father in his in his eyes in his heart in his soul and how uh, he deals with John later on and and, and the stuff in, in season eight and his big finish and, and the horrible things he experiences and the horrible things he does I think a lot of that comes from Tyrion. Knowing his truth, but not wanting to face it. And I love the scene between him and Tyrion. And Tyrion, who has just said, he has just said he has a tender heart for these cripples, uh, bastards, and broken things. Um, But when Theon comes at him real hard, Tyrion's got some truth. You're going to need to face it. Stupid rebellion then. I actually really love that moment. Uh, Love everything in there. Viserys is another character that does not want to face the truth of his situation. He's um, he's a horrible character. He's, Harry Lloyd does such a great job. He's so 
just you just want it. He's he's a little bitch. I'm just gonna say it. Viserys is is that <laughs> in this episode, he's really doubling down because he's losing control. Go back to episode one. He's a prick there. He's a prick to the end. But episode one, he's got control. He's got questions. I'm a king. Illyrio does a great job kissing his ass to manipulate him and keep him in uh, in uh, in control as far as part of the Targaryen restoration plan there, right? But uh, he slowly starts to see it. He slowly starts to face his own truth. He is a broken thing, too, and he does not want to face it. He can't face it. How could he? He has no power. His concept of power. His inability to recognize Dothraki as people, the constant use of, of savages, and, and Danny just saying, no, uh, you can't do it, and saying, I am of these people now. I am one of them now. Again, she is, is that 100% true? I don't know, maybe not, but at this point, she's doing her best. I think it's a good faith effort on Danny to connect with uh, her people, as it were. She is their Khaleesi, uh, and, and she believes in it, and she's starting to face her truth, and we start to see that later, but um, Viserys does not want to does not want to face it, and the as as Daenerys starts to understand her destiny, embrace it. Viserys going to the Dorea bathtub scene. We're going to have a little bit more. We got some calls from all of you coming here uh, in the second half of the show. That bathroom scene, a uh, bathroom, well, bathtub scene with Dorea is is a spectacular scene. It's one of Cogman's finest. It is an add on scene. They had they shot that after. Um, after the episode was complete. But I love Viserys in that scene because he is speaking with this romantic, lore-filled view of the Targaryen dynasty. And and I don't I'm not one that's over here thinking the Targaryens are quote all bad. Um Aegon's conquest is an interesting, interesting thing to read about for me. Fire and Blood is, is so great because it deals with it really the best thing about that Fire and Blood book. There's a lot of things I love about the Fire and Blood book. Here, it's, it's a book uh, we love it here at Casually Talk in general. It's just the idea that Aegon's conquest, he conquers, he conquers, and then immediately there's kind of peace in the realm. It, it's interesting to study, and Dorne doesn't bow, and all those things, and there's great plot points to read and, and learn about. But I've always found that interesting uh, that Aegon, the realm is calm after that. Magor is the one who kind of really upsets that, and that's the flipping of the coin with the Targaryens, as we know. But Viserys is sitting here just not, he can't face that. He cannot face that the Targaryen dynasty might might have been felt, filled with some great feats and some great big dragons, but also filled with some horrible actions and some horrible things, and it's quite possible that the people don't want him back there. He can't face it, and it destroys him, and he's jealous of those who have the power around him, jealous of those that are loved. What gets him in the end over Danny? It isn't, uh, it, I think it begins with him that it's her ascending to, to power, power that he doesn't have, power that he wants. He, he, I think of, when I look at Viserys, I think of Tywin all the time, of, of a man who says he's has to say his king is no king at all. I mean, Viserys is, it's every other word. I am the king, I am the dragon. Very clearly, he isn't. But I, I think it's the adoration. I think it's the acceptance. It's not just the title and the power, the perceived power that Danny has. When it finally, in the end, I mean, she rises up with him here. He, he is frightened here. Comes in strong, leaves crying and sniveling and weak. But it's, I, think, I think some of it's the adoration. And it's not adoration that Danny. Craved, I think of it. I think of anything, especially early on, it's adoration that Danny earns. 
but that's what gets them, and that's part of the truth Viserys can't can't face. And and I think it goes a lot in the ba- the bathtub scene here with Dorea. We'll come back to that there. Uh, Jorah is in there having to face the truth. We see it again, the selling the slaves. And I look for what it's worth. I love Jorah, uh, as you all know. That's a, that's a broken record on my end, but. I love this uh, telling the story at a very, uh, very expensive wife. Where is she now? Uh, in another land with another man. Uh, poor Jorah. Play those violins. I love him. I love him, man. I absolutely love him. Uh, so um, he he brings brings it up again. Again, I love this, especially if you're what if you can go back to the time when you're watching this show for the first time by yourself uh, or with friends and loves one and you haven't read the books yet and you're and you're uh, and you're playing with these characters in your mind who am i rooting for who do i like and and things by episode four things are starting to i think i hate that character but something i like about that character you i you jor you kind of immediate immediately like i don't know a lot of people who don't who don't like jor at worst they just eh, maybe not my favorite person but I, I, I don't ha- I've never met a ton of people actively rooting against Jorah. As a Stannis fan, I can assure you, there are people actively rooting against Stannis. This, I guarantee, happens. Jorah, a little less. He does some things that are wrong. Times uh, he's a little creepily obsessed with Danny. I fully admit that, uh, even though I'm a big Jorah fan. But I think overall, you're rooting for this guy. And Ian Glenn just brings a heart to him there. But you're also rooting for Ned Stark. And to hear these guys early on, I love going back to this and seeing just like, yeah, Ned Stark wants me dead. Looking at the audience, like that guy y'all rooting for in the other land that you all like, Sean Bean, he wants me dead. What do you think about him now? I like that kind of stuff there. Um, and, and when I talk about facing the truth, in the case of like Viserys, it's like having to really, really be honest with yourself about what your past is, your truth is, what your trauma is, whatever it is. And with Jorah, he's so hard on himself that he holds on to his sins, the stuff he says um, to uh, in the previous episode about his father, about him, my father's a great man, and, and, I, and I betrayed him. Uh, he, he, he's always lashing himself there, Jorah. And I think it's him, it's about he needs to face the truth of, of, um, of the situation, that he maybe, have, maybe did something wrong, te- technically wrong, rule of law, even more than the spirit of law, but he doesn't let himself off. He doesn't forgive himself, and that dominates. He can't face that truth. Um, so I think that. Then we go to um, other just uh, examples of, of truth, facing it. Um, we get uh, – I'm going to jump here a little bit here to, to uh, some of the uh, other ones. We'll come back to Jon Snow. Sansa and Arya have similar – things presented to them in this episode and both eventually i mean sansa right here is just very mad at ned Arya isn't but i think later on it factors in some frustrations and some of their great conversations but both of them are faced with they're not faced with their truth as is oh this is i have to deal with this this is this is who i am emotional stuff they are both presented first by first by uh, sansa and septa mordain and then the really engaging, charming scene uh, with Ned and, and Arya's doing the, uh, you know, the, the, the practice and the balance and tomorrow she's going to chase cats and her dancing lessons are going great. Both of them are presented with this, what I'll say is potential truth and the truth of how the world views them. Sansa, 
you're going to marry the, the king. And I know it's not, he's not been, uh, the prince hasn't been great to you, but you're going to marry the prince. You become a queen to him and you're going to give him a bunch of beautiful children. They better be boys, but oh, don't worry. Uh, you know, and Sansa keeps a, what if they're girls? What if this, what Jane Poole's mom has five girls? What if they do that? Everyone will hate me. This is my duty. I'm supposed to give the king uh, a, a prince. And, and she's faced with something that she wanted. And this is Sansa right away. Right away, episode four, and it's already happened, but Sansa's dreams, the ones she wanted going back to her, just when we first meet her, and everything going on in the pilot, Sansa's already, she's got horrible things, horrible things coming away. We know that, and it's tragic. It's hard to watch. But go back to this moment. She is faced with a particular set of truths, potential truths, for this is what is expected for you. You are to go this way. And she's not yet ready or strong enough to say no. But I take solace in the fact that for all the horrible things that happened to her, she doesn't go that way. She forms a new path. She becomes the queen of the north. And go back to this scene. Go back to her and Septim Mordain staring up at the throne. And, and the Septa who's, I really, I, I really like the character. What, what she ends up doing for Sansa in the end is, is pretty powerful, pretty powerful act. Here she is, just, you know, tell her, tell, this, this is the way it is. You're going to say, oh, don't worry. Beautiful children. Everything's going to be great. Ah, he's not great, but this is your duty. This is also what you want. And this is what me as your septive probably helped kind of counsel and train you on. Part of my duty. Get you ready for this. Get you ready to go to court. And Sansa, because that's something she knows she, or at least thinks she wants, she's not ready to fight against it. She's not, not there yet. And it's, a, and it's a long journey to get there. But I love this scene. It's a truth dropped in front of her that she slowly starts to realize and then pretty powerfully she doesn't want. She doesn't want that one. She might want the throne. She might want a throne. She doesn't want to sit next to it. She wants to sit on it. She wants to be in control of some of her choices and her destiny. And I think it's pretty powerful. This scene is an underrated scene to watch when you go back. Same thing, you got Arya. Arya's... uh, Plain and simple. I mean, and, and we're going to come back to a little bit in the in the things that mean something more now, especially as it relates to Nymeria. But she's presented with a truth or a potential truth or what people consider should be her truth going forward. It's not about the past, about going forward with Sansa and Arya here. But like, oh yeah, yeah, no, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you. You're gonna you're gonna marry a little prince, and uh, you're gonna have some kids too, and you're gonna you know you, you'll you'll run the hold fast while he rules it. Uh, don't worry, it's all gonna be good. And 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 then you can't fault Ned here. You can't fault Ned. Um, but in fact, I want to give Ned credit because he 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 does does hire Serial Pharrell. He does see it, and he doesn't react. We don't see the scene play out. It ends, but when she says pretty plainly, "No, that's not me." He smiles, uh, you know, uh, she'll learn, she'll learn. But also, in Ned's eyes, Sean Bean's choices here, it's like he's, I don't see him fighting against it. I think there's some traditions that he thinks that just won't be changed. He didn't have that foresight. But in, 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 in a way, I think Ned believes her in this scene. And, and it's a good scene for her. Talking about the truth. Truth and traumas, it's all here. Uh, we got the Jon Snow stuff now here. Uh, some of the best stuff of season one was Jon kind of learning his way at the wall. It's great to go b- back and watch now. Uh, it's just even more powerful to me. 
John, too, has a tender spot in his heart for those cripples, bastards, and broken things. And we get one of the most broken things presented to him, uh, where John uh, Bradley as Samuel Tarley shows up. And uh, this is uh, John Bradley's first major role, just come out of... uh, like acting school slays it in the audition with the scene of him telling uh, telling John about his father back at Horn Hill. And now, again, going now jump ahead when you got Randall Tarley, Dick on Tarley, to know what Sam went through, to hear this story now, and now to have a face and a voice, a menacing, mean voice to the story as, as Samuel Tarley's uh, telling John the story. Great stuff, and... And uh, uh, John Bradley, just a, a great performer, uh, just kills it as Sam, and it, and it's needed, and it's needed. Uh, you know, we need a, we need to really not just root for for Sam, and not have just have empathy for Sam, but I think one of the things in this episode, one of the themes, and, and even maybe more of a lesson for me that I take from this in these sequences with John and and Sir Alistair Thorne is is uh, not just root and have empathy and sympathy for Sam but want him to get better and want him to grow and not want him just to stay in this protective bubble that John's now forming around him. And I think John starts from a real good, real good point, as John does. Um, You know, seeing the truth of Sam, seeing, um, seeing what's there in front of him and knowing he needs help and knowing he needs help. But it comes in a little bit later. Second half of the show, we'll talk about Sir Alistair Thorne and why I love Sir Alistair Thorne. As tough as that may be. And I think he he gets probably what's deserved uh, in the end. But I understand him. And I really love Alistair Thorne as, as a character in the show. Uh, good in the books too, but he's just he pops in the show. And this episode is, is where it starts. Well, this is the episode where I was just like, mm, I like this guy. But it's about John... Learning some of that stuff there, too. Uh, we've got a lot of trauma, too. Talking about um, Ned's Ned's detective work um, is in... Actually, you know what? I'm going to go back to John and Sam here. I think one of the things... If this is a series of cripples, bastards, and broken things, if this is what that show is about, and it's all of us are broken in some way, I do think this show, if you want it, I don't know if it's... It's not on a banner headline on the show, but I think if you want it, you can look past and ask yourself the question, look past the surface and ask yourself the question, can we grow past our traumas? Every one of these characters, especially here in this first part of the season, we keep talking about that. We talked a lot about trauma in the previous three episodes. Trauma is real. Trauma is not to be ignored. It's not to be downplayed. It is to be worked through and dealt with. I believe this may be a personal opinion. I don't like to swim in it. I'm a depressive, uh, depressive person, been in therapy for that. I do not like to swim in it, though it's sometimes impossible to. But how do I choose to work through it? How do I fight through it? And sometimes it's a fight. And every one of these characters in the show has something that I think they need to fight through. And I love this moment. John and Sam on the top of the wall. Sam, you know, with his blinking eyes up there, uh, comes there and and he knows he has an ally in John. And this is where I think... This comes after the great scene, right? Uh, I'm trying to check my notes. Maybe, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I can't remember. But we got, these, we got the Sir Alistair Thorne speech going on here. So maybe it is after. I can't remember. Um, 
I just watched it literally 20, 20 minutes before I recorded this. And I can't remember. So many things to watch and take notes on. But anyways, at the top of the wall, when when Sam, I think he 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 gets up there and he 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 knows he has an ally and friend in John, and so there he can he can let the let the guard down. He tells him the story, all that kind of stuff. We know that. But I think there's something he gets to the top of the wall and he just kind of says, you know, I can't see good and, you know, you know, this is who I am. And I love, I love, I think this is more powerful than I think he, even I gave it credit for in the first 50 rewatches. When John turns to Sam and says, you can't fight, you can't see, you're afraid of heights and almost everything else probably. What are you doing here, Sam? Now, we know why Sam's there. We know the what and the hows of that. But this is a why. I love the whys. And Sam has to figure that out. John has to figure that out for himself. What are you doing here? And I don't mean this to sound harsh, but Samuel Tarley tells a pretty horrible, horrific story, especially now that we've seen Randall Tarley in action later on in the series. John's been through some bad stuff here. Excuse me, John, John Bradley, Samuel Tarley. And it's all true and it's all valid. But I still think the question you have to ask yourself and the question he gets asked, great, what are you doing here? And how do you go forward? That's a truth. How do you take that forward? That's a trauma. How do you take that forward? And it is not easy. I'm not suggesting that on the show or that in real life is easy. Absolutely not. But these are tales. These are myths. These are stories full of lessons. Stories full of characters that make mistakes that we, we learn from those mistakes. These are stories of things done to characters that they did not deserve. And they cannot help. And what do we take from that? What do we learn from that? I think that's why we keep coming back. We want Sam to get better. We want Sam to answer this question. What are you doing here, Sam? Do I keep saying John or Sam? John Bradley? So damn good. I consider him Samuel Tarley in real life too. What are you doing here, Sam? And what are all of us doing here? And what are all these characters doing here? And sometimes those characters answer incorrectly and create great television. But that's what this episode really put forth uh, for me. What are we doing here? What was and what could be? And that never has to remain the same. We, when, I go, when I keep saying we're rooting for Sam to... We're rooting for Sam, number one. But... I think we were rooting for him to grow and get stronger, but not not a classic sense. Look, he he ends up getting a, 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 a big kill, right? He, he kills a white walker. Put that on his back of his baseball card. But that's not an act of strength. It, it, it's 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 not just a simple kill. It's why he does that. It's who he does it for. And where he finds that courage in that situation, where he clearly is afraid. That's the stuff we want to root for in Sam. And that's when he shows up here, you immediately feel sorry for him. But now I want to push him forward. And we'll come back to that stuff with with, uh, Alistair Thorne. I was starting to go into the Ned thing too. Ned's detective work, as I said up top, really kicks up here in this episode. And this is something that has pulled many, many people into the series. I can't, uh, can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, some who I've been on shows with, 
who are like eh, dragons, magic, whatever. I'm here for the politics and the intrigue and the character work. And I think that's probably why some people were pulled in and then maybe as the show got more magic and got more big and epic and it became something bigger and we didn't have this time for the smaller scenes, I, I could see that being a, a factor in some people liking the show less. And I don't disagree. I, I understand. I, I, as much as I love the later seasons and I love episode eight or season eight, I do wish we had more of the quiet moments we get in season one. I just, I, I do, but it's just also you know, where, where the story went and as big as the show got and, and the things you needed to tell, um, there was a little bit of a trade-off for better or worse. And a lot of you think worse and that's just the way it is. But um, we have these scenes to dig into and Ned's detective work. And I'm speaking from personal experience. Ned's detective work absolutely is what I, I spent every, you know, Monday through Saturday through Sunday afternoon wondering what's Ned going to discover from this from this episode on I'm to the end to Ned's bitter end. And I still didn't believe it. I, st- I thought Ned was going to survive that beheading and, and Arya was going to save him and the whole world and realm would know that Joffrey is who he really is. I just, you know, and then I, you know, and you start to realize... You know, if you're looking for justice, you've come to the wrong place with Game of Thrones. So uh, I love, though, just kind of diving into the why of Ned's search. We keep coming back to the show because of Ned's detective work and the book and the clues. But honestly, and I don't think just just because of, 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 of hindsight, but I mean, we're pretty clued into what the truth is. As, as viewers, right from the beginning, even, even if it's not expressly stated, we get the sense. So a lot of the things Ned is picking up, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this Joffrey is searching Jamie's son, right? Like, so it's again, it's about the why of the search. And, and I do believe there's a lot of Ned, Ned's search, his detective work is, is a search for the truth no one wants to face. Robert's trauma, we keep talking about Robert Baratheon. I believe he he knew in his heart Lena Stark loved Rhaegar. The answer of, of a lot of things is in front of Robert, including I think I think he has to realize. I think he's just numb with alcohol. I think he has to realize something ain't on the up and up with Cersei, Jamie, and, and, and his kids. I, I, to, to me, it's impossible to think at one point he didn't question it. Maybe at one point he accepted it. I'm not saying he was denying it or it's just like Ned searches about that. It's like, this was right in front of you. Cause Robert knew about the bastards, uh, you know, not necessarily Gendry, but he, you know, and this might be a little bit more on the book side, but you know, he had an idea. Um, Ned's detective work takes him to Baelish, the great Baelish scene. We'll come back to that as a quote. Baelish is saying the truth. He's saying a lot of truths. No one wants to face it. Ned, even at times. Sir Hugh. Sir Hugh with a veil. He knows his truth. I'm a knight in name only. I'm going to bluster and puff out my chest until everyone else believes that I'm actually a knight. But I know I'm not. I'm scared. And look what happens to him. He pretends to be something else, and it costs him. Eh, you know, a lot of that has to do with Gregor, but I don't I don't want to totally hate on Sir Hugh. He's so great in the, in the one moment. Well, I am a knight. I just so happen to be a knight. Yeah, you're going to get yours. Uh, Gendry's truth. Gendry's truth. 
does he know all the truth? No, he doesn't know the big reveal. But he's going to face it. And Robert and him, uh, excuse me, Ned and him having uh, interaction. Um, again, not that Gendry's like, John Aaron kept coming around. Now this hand of the king coming around. I wonder what's going on. No, but he's got a truth in front of him that he's going to have to face, too, and it takes a while to get him there. And there's a lot more. Ned's detective work takes him to a lot of places. We have a great scene with Cersei. Uh, another theme to explore a little bit later on. Um, so that's some of the big stuff there. We also learn of the truth of Sandor and Gregor. Now, it's a different method than the books to get the history. In the, in the book, uh, I do believe Sandor is the one telling Sansa uh, his own history. But I like this better. I will say I like this plot uh, device, this trick a little bit better. Baelish, number one, you set some, Baelish just knows, like, how do you, how does Baelish know that? Uh, he and Varys, their little war of whispers, I love that, so that it just kind of helps that. Um, but I, I really like this idea better, it just works for me, that San, I don't think Sandor, when it finally, when he finally reveals some of his truths and his past traumas to Arya, it's much more powerful. Much more powerful than getting it in this episode or in, in season one. If he was to tell Sansa at all, like, here's 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 what's going on with me. I like this better, and it just really sets it up. And it is, again, the truth and facing it. And how do you work past trauma? And it takes Sandor a long time, understandably. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me when I'm talking about traumas. And it's a very real-world conversation. Um but how you get through them or how you work past them or how you deal with them or, you know, and that they won't leave. They don't leave. Sandor's scars will never leave. This is always going to be there. What's he going to do with it? It's also interesting to note Sandor several times, several times. Well, if you accidentally call him a sir or a knight, he will correct you very fast and very angrily. And I think it's interesting to note that uh, Baelish says the toy he was playing with was a wooden knight. Sandor probably holding that wooden knight, dreaming like every other boy in the realm of being a strong, proud, noble knight. And it was that, it was that moment that gave him the scars that ruined his life, that dominated his life. An interesting little detail that I can, I think it sometimes be slipped past all of us. So, there you go. Um, I also love to, uh, John really goes into, John Snow goes into his past uh, when talking with Samuel Tarley about uh, have they ever been with women. Fun scene, charming scene, but in there you got John really kind of speaking, speaking some heartfelt stuff about who his mother is and, and he doesn't know. And, and it's, it's heartbreaking, especially, you know, with the knowledge we have now and probably even knowledge uh, we started gathering as the show went on. But also, side, a side note in the scene, he talks about Roz being uh, uh, the uh, sex worker in Westeros that he went to see. And Theon talks about her. We've seen her with Tyrion. And Roz, um, Esme Bianco is the actor who plays her. It was supposed to be, as we all know, it was supposed to be like a one-off character, one episode. They bring her back. But I, I love the mentions. I love her just being all around. But poor Roz, that ending, so brutal. But the things she knows. The things Roz knows. If she could only write a book. So there you go. That's some of the big themes and lessons in episode four. Cripples, bastards, and broken things. But we're not done talking about it. We are going to take a quick break here on the podcast side. And uh, during the break, while I switch some files around on YouTube, we'll do some bonus discussions. Just bonus discussions. I also need a drink of water. 
My lips are sticking together, friends. This is Casterly Talk. We're looking back at episode four, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. We'll see you on the other side. Hey, it's Alden Diaz here to tell you about Octo Radio. It's an interview show that I do exploring the different passionate Star Wars perspectives from artists, writers, crafters, and even other podcasters, plus even some people straight from Lucasfilm. So you can come hang out on my podcast island and celebrate the Star Wars ties that bind us together. Oh yeah, what the pork said. You can follow us everywhere on social at A-H-C-H-T-O Radio. That's Octo Radio. And follow me at A-D underscore Strider. Well, hello there. This is Lauren Romo, one of the co-hosts of the Gal Like a Podcast. We are two gals that just talk anything and everything within that galaxy far, far away. Come join us for the Star Wars discussions. Stay for that silliness. You can find us on Apple Pod, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean. Follow us on Twitter at the Galactic Pod. And as always, may that force be with you. team, I'm Grace Hancock, and I wanted to let you know that I'm adding new designs to my Society6 shop with several on their way. If you didn't know, you can go to Society6.com slash Mrs. Graceface and shop prints of my original artwork, as well as tons of other items like stationery, notebooks, mugs, throw pillows. It's a great place to shop for gifts or just for yourself, especially in my shop if you like witchy expressionism. So head to Society6.com slash Mrs. Graceface and check it out. Welcome back to Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsack, just by myself this week. Looking back at episode four of Game of Thrones, season one, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Thank you so much for coming along for the ride. All right, we are going to start uh, in the second half of the show here. We are going to uh, take a look at some important foreshadowing, uh, things with more meaning, some favorite moments. We've got some calls from uh, you out there via the Anchor app. Important foreshadowing, things with more meaning. Bran dreaming about the Three-Eyed Raven. Great beginning to the show. It is one of the first times. Again, we're early on. We're season one. You got the chilling, uh, at the end of episode two, King's Road. Ladies killed. That's not great. But then Bran's eyes popping open. Still gives me chills. And then this pulled me in even another way. Like, because we literally, we literally had no idea. We had no idea. Again, book readers were over there going, oh, I know what this means. God bless you. I was like that by season four. I was the one going, oh, I know what this means. But back here, it just, what was going on? An old Nan uh, wakes him up. Uh, you, uh, little Lord's been dreaming. Like, oh, okay, okay, he's dreaming. But what does the dream say? It's fun to watch this now. It's foreshadowing. It's It means more now. But back then, and even like, if you're doing a rewatch in season three, you even have you have less idea. You, you think you know what this means. Just where it ends up. It's fascinating to me. Uh, things that mean more now. Theon and Bran, they have this little interaction in the beginning. Theon's, you know, he's being Theon, chest pumping Theon at the, at the beginning. But um, this scene, I love it. And watching it this time around made me value Theon's death even more and the full circle nature of that. Theon's already got a lot of scenes by this point, this point in the show, but he's got this is his first meaty stuff, the scene with him and Tyrion. And now this, this, this moment, it, it plays off 
eight seasons later, but the connection there between he and Bran and the choices Theon makes in the end, uh, I don't just, I just, I just, I value it a lot more now. Hodor walks in, says Hodor for the first time about Bran. Oh, tug on my heartstrings. That's horrible. Seeing Vistoth Rack and knowing what uh, becomes of that and how it's key to Danny at many different times of her life, I thought that was interesting. The conversation she's having with Jorah about the Dothraki had never crossed the narrow sea. And Jorah, you know, he comes across. Well, no, I'll take it back. We know Jorah doesn't come across with her. He ends up meeting up with her again. And this is, a, to me, means more now just as what. His advice and how it's taken from her um, is is valuable, and, and when she loses that, that is one of the the pillars pulled out from underneath her. And, and, and this conversation, Robert is foolish enough to meet them in open battle. Though we have other dialogue and, and scenes in season one that show you Robert understands a Dothraki horde would be very tough to meet in open battle. But Jorah's right in a sense. Robert loves a good fight. Um, but those around him would counsel him better. So there's some good stuff here that just kind of means more now when you know what happens. Um, let's go into the uh, Duray in the bathtub scene, or as I call it, the bathtub scene of history. It's some of the best foreshadowing around. Like, it's got, like, a roll call of things big and small, right? The dragons, the names of the dragons, some made up for the show, some from the books. She talks about faceless men, a man that can uh, change his face like other men change his clothes, a man with a dragon glass dagger, and what uh, that could be, could it be, could it be, uh, you know, well, I was going to say Baelish, but that's a Valyrian still dagger. Could she have been confused? No, I don't think it's specific. I don't like to, I don't like to really apply specifics to this kind of stuff, but just the mention of a dragon glass dagger seemed like nothing. Again, read the books. God bless you if you're ahead. But if you're watching and we're analyzing the show, this is a, all these are mentions that you just go like, hey, 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 cool, the world building. Then you go back to this bathtub scene a lot. Roxanne McKee's so great. Harry Lloyd's great too. But you, it, it just, can you feel for her? You know, because Viserys talks down to her. Oh, you've been 15 years in a whorehouse. You've never even seen the sky. She's like, F you, man. I've seen, this is what I've seen. I've seen the world. And she's seen everything she describes is stuff that comes into play later on. A faceless man, man with a dragon glass. We're going to need that dragon glass. She talks about a, a pirate wearing his weight in gold and uh, silk colored, uh, colorful silk uh, sails. I think a lot of people take that as Salvador San, um, a great character, it, you know, factors in uh, big and small, I would say, but I, I love Salvador San, but I think that's theirs too. Uh, and then Dorea talking about her own love of dragons and how that will be her downfall and what that means and how that affects, how that affects Daenerys. If they don't, you know, I don't know if, if, if we'll get we we'll get to that in season two. But there's a little bit of uh, uh, some kind of a uh, in-story butterfly effect. Dorea's love of dragons, and then dragons emerge. We see her season two in in Carth, uh, just trying to learn to feed them and get them to you know she's doting over them. And who wouldn't who wouldn't doesn't love a cute little dragon? And then she helps uh, she helps get some uh, she helps steal them and 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 sends essentially sends uh, Danny to the house of the undying where Danny has a vision of things to come and I think taps into higher power and the dragons themselves tap into their higher skills and abilities and powers and a lot of that comes from Dorea loving dragons if you if you will if you follow me down that down that path. So anyways, love this scene. It was, again, written after. The episode came up a little short. This scene and the Jory Cassell and Jamie Lannister scene, 
they went back and uh, um, not reshoots. They just went back, well, reshoots for the overall episode, but not for these scenes. Uh, they added these scenes, and I think that's interesting. Um, when you know, you know, the plan is not, even if a plan's in place, you're going to go eventually find that you might need to go toss some other stuff in there, and, and these scenes come out of that, and that's great. Um, we talked a lot about Sans and Arya. I, I think those scenes... They, they're in the, the, the big lessons and the big themes of this episode, but just go back and watch them just on the surface, just knowing what happens with those two characters and these, these two scenes, her hearing, Sansa hearing about what she'll become and knowing that really none of that is true and her path ends up so much better, though with a lot of horrible things in the way, as we know. Um, I like that a lot. Onaria, no, that's not me. And just when she uses that again to Nymeria, that heartbreaking scene with Nymeria, but a powerful scene later on. Um, we got some uh, great quotes coming up here, but uh, we also got the first mention of Theros, Thoros of Mir. I love Rast and Ghost. Uh, during that uh, that scene where they kind of uh, intimidate Rast into not hurting Samuel Tarly and knowing where Rast ends up with uh, dire wolves. Um, there, we, we, I talked about Roz. Just poor Roz. She's seen it all. But poor Roz. Uh, I love any time I see that cat spot dagger. Anytime I see that Valyrian still dagger. And I, I always yell at the screen, that saves us all. It always has more meaning. Braun shows up. That has a lot of meaning. Jerome Flynn shows up. He's smart right from the beginning. I'll take, pay me to take my room, sleep in it. I'll sleep out in the barn with the, with the gold you're going to give me. Braun shows up. Favorite moments, lines, and scenes. Uh, one, this is a little one. We're going to get into uh, some bigger stuff. But there's... Um, I love in, in the Castle Black scenes when they're when they're out in the courtyard training and Alistair Thorne and Jon Snow are going at each other with uh, with words. Um, I always check the extras in the background. I got no problems with extras, but sometimes I don't know what they were. I don't know what the sh- it's just watch it. The sword, the quote unquote sword fighting training that's going on by the extras in Castle Black. It's clink, 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 clink. It's the worst but therefore the best. I'm like, are they, are they going to be Rangers with that? Alistair Thorne should turn around and maybe yell at them. At least Gren and Pip and Rast, even though they're getting their ass kicked by John, they're fighting. They're fighting. And we know what John's capable of, but turn around. You might have some problems elsewhere, Alistair. Uh, I uh, love, uh, there's the, in one of the small council meetings uh, where Ned says, I'm sure the attorney puts many a coin in pockets. Uh, might be paraphrasing a little bit. And there's a great cutaway shot to Baelish because t- Baelish is t- has just basically said, oh, the whores, you know, are walking bow-legged in town uh, with attorney. Ned says, oh, I'm sure the attorney puts uh, many a coin in pockets. And just ba- there's a cut to Baelish and he goes, mm-hmm. I just, I, it's an unintentional comedy moment. Uh, maybe even intentional. It's great. I love... Uh, the other add-on scene, Jamie and Jory Cassell having a great conversation. Uh, it's just one, actually one of my low-key favorite moments in the show. It says a lot about Jamie and who he's trying to be, who he feels he needs to be, and the stuff he's working through because he's guarding Robert while Robert, you know, fools around with three or four women, one who smells like Brockberry Jam. One of, that's one of the <laughs> greatest quotes of the show, I guess, for me. Uh, and he's dealing with that. And then he has to, he has to, he keeps this up. And Jory, you know, Jory's Jory, Jory, all through, I mean, poor Jory going through, and poor Jory for what happens to him. But uh, Jory, every time he's going around, hi, I'm just, I'm just got to give you this message. You're going to treat me bad too. Thanks. Great. There's Jamie. But he's kind of like, hey, I like that Jory's like, hey, 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 hey. You know, we've met before. Not only we met, we fought next to each other. 
in the this increasingly fascinating journey of Jamie Lannister. This is we've had the we've had one of the biggest moments already with him talking about his first kill and then what the Mad King says. That's one of my favorite scenes, but that's why I call this one one of just kind of my my low key favorite scenes of the show. I love that Jamie suddenly is like, "Oh, you you were at the Siege of Pike." Guard comes down. Yeah, that was that was a fight, man. Oh, those Greyjoys—they do enjoy their violence. Oh yeah, and uh, talking about Thor Samir—that's where we get our first mention of Thor Samir and the flaming sword. It's like not that Jamie and Jory could have been best friends; they wouldn't. But I just like seeing Jamie kind of like feel like, oh yeah, and and and, and I know he feels that's that's he's supposed to be that knight, and that's him talking about kills and knights and knights doing knight things, uh, even though Jory's not a knight. I don't know. There's just humanity to Jamie in this moment, and that you want it. You want it, and then he turns. He turns on Jory. Uh, there's just something intriguing about it, Jamie, in this moment, in all these moments in season one, where he starts un- unveiling and, and peeling back the layers. We also get, um, we also get uh, Catelyn's. Uh, uh, excuse me. We also get uh, Ned and Cersei having the, the scene. Anytime they have a scene, we could spend a lot of time. I don't want to spend too much time on it here. Um, Today, we're going to have a lot more moments with Ned and Cersei, but I just love any time they're together as, as performers, as characters. It's great stuff. Uh, in a couple moments here, uh, we um, we do get, we do get uh, let's not, uh, Baelish saying, uh, I'm going to talk about it in the quotes, but Baelish and Ned having the great scene. And Baelish, again, going to me some of the truths about, uh, here, let me tell you the truth. You know, you face the truth of uh, King's Landing. You kind of have a hunch, Ned, and you're being stubborn and you're sticking to it. You don't want to play the game, but that's a spy. That's a spy. That's my spy. I actually love that scene, and it says a lot about what's going on in Ned's uh, mind and, and, and heart and, and, and the world around him that's troubling to him, and, and I understand it. He's not wrong. Uh, we end the episode with Catelyn Stark and the, uh, the action that launches a war. We also got Sir Alistair Thorne's speech. I want to talk about these two moments. Let's go to Sir Alistair Thorne. I really do legitimately love this character. I love Alistair Thorne. He is complicated to love, probably less than my guy Stannis. But he is a, a crusty old guy that I love because I'm a crusty old guy myself too. I have a, a lot of personal experiences in different kind of leadership roles and I have some takes on how to do it and how to do it wrong because uh, I've done it wrong and how to do it right because I feel sometimes I've done it right. Sir Alistair Thorne overall, I'd say, does things the way he's supposed to, but I would also say he does things wrong. And there's a lot of play going back up to, to John, the arrival of Samuel Tarley. And what I talk about, what I mean about we are to have sympathy and empathy and root. And we're supposed to root for Samuel Tarley. And John Bradley's performance right from the get-go makes that possible. But I think it would be a disservice to Samuel Tarley and to those in our lives to stop at that point. Ah, oh, you got a lot of, yeah, dealt some bad cards Good, I'm, I'm going to protect you and help you. That's good, but don't stop there. If possible, and again, I, I hate sometimes making these real-world connections because it's not, I'm speaking in generalities, and there's some things that, that are, you know, real world's the real world, but follow me here. I think in this episode, John starts to learn it's not good enough just to protect Sam and Gren and Pip. They have to get better. I always go to a great scene 
sequence in the movie Glory from 1989. Ed Swick directs Denzel Washington, Matthew Broderick, Carrie Elwes in the Civil War, Morgan Freeman in the Civil War, uh, sorry, Andre Brower. Uh, great, great, one of my all-time favorite movies. But there's a scene where Carrie Elwes is uh, you know, teaching the, the men to shoot, and they're fun, they're laughing, they're bonding. And you're you're root you're like oh everyone's bonding They're, this the the fifty fourth is going to get together they're going to everyone's going on the same team but Matthew Broderick knows what will happen when they get on the battlefield he's been there he's seen heads blown off he's seen uh, legs chopped off he's been there and so it's a real kind of tough moment and he's kind of being an a hole Matthew Broderick is Colonel Robert Shaw. And he's shooting the, 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 they're trying to get the guy to load fast. And he's, he's shooting the pistol in his head, boom, boom, boom. And then the guy kind of breaks, boom. And uh, Matthew Roderick turns to Gary Ellis and says, you know, teach them right, Captain. Is it Captain or Major? Maybe it's Major. Teach them right. That's the point, though. It's been a while since I watched that movie. But that's the point. Teach them right. Connect with them. Bond with them. Love them. Be one with them. We all are going to grow together, but we need to grow. And you must teach them right and must prepare them for what's to come, as brutal as that may be. That, to me, is Alistair Thorne in this moment. When he confronts John and Sam and they're having the learn the kitchen scene and they're being friends and they're talking about uh, not being with women and Alistair Thorne walks in. We always talk about episode stars here. Owen Teal as Sir Alistair Thorne. A lot of uh, stage time. Uh, a lot of stage time uh, uh, in New York, Broadway, that kind of stuff. Um, he kills it. And I love him for it. And this is why I love the character. It's this moment. Now he goes on. He's, he's, he's telling some truths. We talk about facing truths. This episode, the themes of facing truths. And we're all cripples, bastards, and broken things. But you must face that trauma. You must face that truth and decide where to go with it. It's a harsh lesson, and this, and I, I don't. Some people might not agree with me on this, but this is a leadership lesson. Everything Alistair Thorne says in this speech here to me is true. He does go into the story of eating the horses and eating the men, and and and, and he takes some shots at Sam and his weight. Again, I think he Alistair Thorne does some things wrong, even though George Marmont understands too. I need him to be this way. I need to trade him right, but even down to the line where. Alistair Thorne says, you're going to take the vows and they're going to call you men of the Night's Watch, but you'll be fools to believe it, you boys. That's harsh. That's an insult, but it's not wrong. Nothing he's saying is wrong. Benjamin would agree. I don't think Benjamin would deliver the message in the same way. But look at what we've seen of Benjamin Stark in communicating with Tyrion and who he is. Benjamin's not a happy-go-lucky guy. He's seen some things. The mistake, though, is Alistair Thorne's heart is hard. There's a hardening of the heart. And often people with these experiences that they know are very real and that they know that other people who might criticize them haven't experienced it. They know that even though you might say your ways are wrong, you're like, I know my ways, there's a reason for them. But I think, I think Sir Alistair Thorne has, has hardened his heart and he has failed as a leader in this side. I think he succeeds as a leader. I've talked often on Castle Talk. His, his speech to 
Jon Snow at the Watchers of the Wall episode in season four about leadership, about true leadership. I would put that on a wall because it's true. And stuff Alistair Thorne says in this speech are true. But John, in this moment, John faces the truth. I think he faces it when he asks Sam, why are you here, Sam? This is kind of my point. He has this kind of knowledge. He knows that Thorne is not wrong. That when they all go north of the wall, as, as Thorne says, you don't know cold. He's not lying. And he's not just talking about the coal. I think John does it right and down the line does it right. What makes him a great leader at times, a leader, though, with mistakes. John is a flawed character, too. He's, he's, he always stays on the side of good. He's one of the purest characters in all of Game of Thrones. But I think he makes mistakes along the way, too. And I'm glad he does. Otherwise, he wouldn't be too interesting. But I think he takes this. I think he can look at Sam and have sympathy and want to protect him. But he looks at Thorne and he realizes Sam does have to grow. Why are you here, Sam? I know why you got here. I know I know how. And all of your pain and fears are justified. But why are you here now? And what are you going to do with that? Because if we go north of the wall, you will die. And others around you might die. It's one of my favorite sequences. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of Game of Thrones. All eight seasons is Alistair Thorne in this moment. And it is something that was put in. Um, Cogman uh, talks about it, and he was the, he was a fan of Owen Teal. I'd seen him on stage before. Um, this was to put those kind of complicated layers into Sir Alistair Thorne. And it works for me. Others might disagree, but it works for me. Everything he's saying is true. It's what Thorne does with that truth, I think, is his mistakes. But more importantly, it's what John does with these lessons that makes John so valuable and important, pure, and in the end, great. We end the show with Catelyn Stark and the action that launches a war. And I want to discuss a little bit here where I am with this now. Ned, early on, season uh, one, episode three, uh, warns her of her temper on the road. We talked about that. There's some foreshadowing. I, for years, and I would go on some of these Game of Thrones shows, and I would unfairly hold Catelyn Stark to the flames. I almost feel like I have to go on an apology tour. Now, I think, and Ned might agree, <laughs> she does act out of a little temper. She's a, she's a Tully, but she got a little Stark uh, flair for the uh, temper dramatics here. I think there was better ways to handle this. She does not have all the information, but also a lot of the information was not going to find its way to her because the information was a lie. I, in the past, have been really, really harsh on Catelyn Stark, saying that this moment launches the war, launches everything, launches the death, and a lot of blood is on her hands. I've said that before. And while I understand my own self, where I was coming on, uh, where I was coming from, I don't want to be like Sir Alistair Thorne and take a good truth and harden my heart towards the people behind it. Cersei Lannister says in this episode, we do, uh, what does she say? Uh, we do extreme, we, we, sometimes we go to the extremes where our children are concerned. She says that to Ned Stark. Uh, another one of my favorite quotes of this episode. She has a conversation with Cersei too early on uh, in, in the season. 
where we get a little bit of Cersei and her views on being a mother and, and, and connecting to Catelyn Stark over it. I look at this scene now, I look at it, and Michelle Fairley is just amazing. I've always never thought anything less than that. But this scene, it frustrates me because you're like, no, no, but we, we, we know knowledge that Catelyn Stark would never know. And she does this to protect her son, her family, and her house. And she does it because no one else will. She has to do it herself. She knows it. She's got Rob back up at uh, Winterfell. A Stark uh, must always be in Winterfell. She's got all that stuff going on. Her two daughters, who she'll never see again, are south. Her husband, who she'll never see again, is is too wrapped up in the affairs of the court, understandably, maybe, but he's down there and he's not going to help. She went down there to kind of get some more information. She comes back up. She runs into Tyrion Lannister. And at this point in time, you got Baelish whispering in her ear. And Baelish is great at what he does. It's all clouded. The information's clouded. I want to officially, formally apologize to Catelyn Stark for saying that how the blood's on your hands. There's always some truths that, uh, you know, that are, they're facts. They are what they are. And our feelings sometimes are are washed away by facts, sadly. And there's some things that follow after this. And I think, I think Catelyn makes some more mistakes too, but I will never, never falter for those mistakes. And this one in particular, despite it launching everything that came after it. It's unfair to put that completely on her, but you know what I mean. After this, it starts getting bad fast. But I think put in that situation, I would hope I would have the courage to do what Catelyn Stark did here. Stand up, speak the truth she knows, speak to those around her who should be loyal to her and use her power, control her destiny, and do it for the safety of her house, which we all agree is really important in this world, but more importantly, her family, and more specifically, her son. So, Catelyn Stark, apologies. Good moment here. Episode stars, it's easy to list almost anyone in this episode, including Michelle Fairley, Sean Beans, uh, Lena Headey, all of them. But I, I, as I mentioned, Owen Teal as Thorne, I think is great. Jamie uh, Sives, or is it Sives? Jamie Sives as Jory Cassell. Jory, is a, he's a one character. He doesn't have much long left in the show. Just great. I just love his, uh, just his, it's not even like a woes me. It's just like, God bless it. Everyone down here. I wish I was up at Winterfell. Oh, my God. I think everyone's a knight. Everyone's, ugh, ugh. And he's loyal. Not a lot of loyal. Not a lot of loyal people down there in King's Landing. And John Bradley is Samwell. It's so key. And he's so fresh and new as a performer, as an actor. But he's right from the get-go just making the right choices and bringing something real wonderful to Samwell Tarly. That has to work going forward in the show. My favorite quotes, we got, uh, I have a tender spot in my heart for cripples, bastards, and broken things. Tyrion, again, I think that's a theme for the entire series. Uh, Sir Alistair Thorne, you don't know cold. And Cersei Lannister, sometimes we go to the extremes where our children are concerned. Before we wrap up, though, we got uh, a series of calls here uh, from you. If you have a call, uh, you want to get uh, on the show, you just go to the Anchor app or the Anchor desktop um, app for or desktop portal for uh, Game of Thrones. Casually talk. That's me. You click on the, the call and you uh, the call link and you can leave a message here. Let's go to Sarah Risley with this one. 
Hey, Casterly Talk fans, it's Sarah. I'm calling about episode four, specifically about Theon and Tyrion and how their chance interaction led to planting the seeds of destruction between the Greyjoy and the Stark households and building this bigger tension that will lead to some significant downfalls for the entire Stark family. I completely forgot about this conversation and was wondering what other chance meetings are you seeing on your rewatch that now hold way more meaning than the first time you saw them? Thanks. Wow. That is uh, Sarah's hitting on a couple great things there. Um, yeah. We talked about the Tyrion Theon scene and I love what Sarah said that the, the truce that, that Theon has to face who he is, who he wants to be and that tension it unravels him. It destroys him, right? And it does have a lot of ramifications. Should we blame Tyrion here? Maybe. I don't know. If we're going to blame Catelyn for stuff, maybe we'll blame Tyrion too. But I think it does this. That has way more meaning. As far as things that mean more chance meetings, um, I don't. it's not chance, and nothing with Baelish is chance, but anytime he shows up, anytime he gets a Ned's ear, and anytime you just, with Catelyn, anytime he's working his magic, the, the 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 gift of having all eight seasons where seven with Baelish behind us is is just him putting all the, the little seeds of tension all the way through. I don't know. It just um I don't know if that specifically answers Sarah's question, but but you just to see him work, it's a thing of beauty. But which is why I know a lot of people were upset the way he went out. Which also, by the way, to him sitting down at the Turning next to Arya and Sansa and just kind of being all smug and Baelish. I mean, that is uh, that is interesting now. Um, for Sansa to get a lot of the down low on, on Sandor definitely means a lot more because she has that knowledge. It's in her, it's in her heart. Anytime she interacts with Sandor and and as he starts to help her, little little uh, you know the little bird, the little dove. Um, you know, she has that knowledge. So that means more. Those aren't necessarily confrontational uh, type of uh, things. But uh, I like that there. I'll think more about that, too, and answer that in in the uh, things that have more meaning as we as we go forward. Um, the fun ones is things like, like um, well, you also get Catelyn Stark talking to a fray, which is bittersweet in its own way. But um, we'll talk more, too, about some of the uh, things along the way that, that, that mean more and start spinning out into, into more into more conflict. Great call, Sarah. But I love that Theon Tyrion, Tyrion stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation, just of what Greyjoy versus Stark in the heart of Theon and what that means. All right, uh, we've got Donald Long. Uh, I'm taking these ones live. Let's see what this one's about. Hey, Cashier Talk, just wanted to call in this week and finally talk about my personal favorite character in the series, Daenerys. And in this episode, I think about her two biggest turning points, not only in the show so far, but also her life. When first, when she finally stands up to not only for herself, but also her unborn child, Viserys' abuse. When she hits him back in the face with the belt, she has a great quote with it. And the next time you raise a hand to me will be the last time you have hands. Then later on in the episode, we, she realizes finally with this quote, and brother will never take back the seven kingdoms. We don't really hear her say this part. We kind of see her realize, I'm going to have to do it. It's going to be me that has to take back the seven kingdoms, and she might, and she's going to be the dragon. Thanks. Yeah, the dragon. 
don't wake the dragon. It ain't going to be you, Viserys. Yeah, we talked about uh, up top about some of the the truths and all that kind of stuff. But but this her kind of realizing her path. I, I always we use the term destiny a lot, but I, I really we talk a lot over on Four Center, Joseph Scrimshaw and I about destiny being just the thing that brings you to the big choice. So Danny's got a lot of choices to make. I don't think destiny. I, I hate to use it sometimes uh, and get it confused with what's going to happen regardless. There's choices along the way, and Daenerys definitely makes them along the way, for better or worse. But I think she realizes her path, and I think Donald's right. It's, it's kind of like, yeah, you know what? It ain't him. I think I'm going to have to do this. And that's a powerful moment. Danny's a, a great character, and I know her end frustrates a lot of folks. Very understandable. Um, she frustrated me before that. She's always been one of my favorite characters, but a lot of stuff in season four and five, I was frustrated with her because I wanted her to succeed. So I get it. And her story is a tale of tragedy. It's a tale of tragedy. It is what it, it is. What it is. And we'll talk about that. We have a long way until we get to season eight when we talk all, about all that again. Uh, we talked about Dorea and Viserys, the bath time, uh, the, the bathtub of history. Eric has a call about that before we uh, close out the show today. Hey, Ken and Cashley Talk. So episode four, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. I actually, I love this episode, and I want to talk about the bathtub scene between Norea and Viserys Targaryen. It's a very, very great scene because there's so much foreshadowing and story that's going to come up that's in the dialogue in this scene. You know, Norea talks about... uh, dragon glass and you know a man who can change his face the way ever men change their clothes but the biggest thing about the scene is Viserys how when Dorea puts the hot wax on him he feels it and says ow which is of course sort of a foreshadow of what's going to happen to him it's all it'll, but it's also connects back to the pilot with Daenerys how she got in the bathtub and didn't feel anything and I'd have to say, I think Harry Lloyd truly was the show's first real villain, even though he wasn't on the show that long, because he was really good as Viserys Targaryen. Yeah, full praise for Harry Lloyd. Great, great call, Eric. Yeah, we talked about a lot of that, but yes, I skipped over that. The wax. The clues are all around you, aren't they? Do you want to wake the last dragon? You're getting burnt by candle wax. You ain't no dragon. Yeah, it's there. This is a big scene. Big scene in terms of just things that are to come. We can get into what I also feel is going on with Viserys, his wistful romantic view of the dynasty and his part in it and what will come and not facing. And he talks about the truth. The dragon skulls get smaller and smaller. It's like it's the answer's right in front of you. you. You ain't what you think you are, my friend. And then the wax is dumped on him and it's like, yeah, you definitely aren't what you think you are. Great scene. Eric and I uh, definitely enjoy that scene. And yes, I know, it's two beautiful naked people in a bathtub. What's not to love about sex position and Game of Thrones? Cogman had something interesting to say about that, too. I'm talking about the Game of Thrones sex position, which definitely got a little toned down in the later seasons. I, I do think uh, that's the case. But season one, it's ramped up. But he cites Dorea telling Danny. Uh, men say a lot of things when they're happy. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And just how that makes some sense. You know, it makes some sense. 
right or wrong, it makes some sense. All right, we are almost out of here. I uh, can't thank you enough for uh, taking uh, the time to hang out with me, going back and looking at the themes and lessons that make Game of Thrones just something that has not left and will never leave a lot of our souls. It's a great story, and we are here to dive into it. Next week, I believe we're going to have a pundit back in uh, the studio with us here. I'll... uh, not officially announce it, so I can confirm it, but we are going to be uh, going on to episode five. So if you have any thoughts on that, call in here to Anchor. You want to join that conversation there. I want to tell you about something I'm doing here. Uh, we are, um, if you're watching this uh, before the event happens, I never know, you might be watching this years later. If so, we had a great show. October 10th, 2020. What a great year. October 10th, 7 p.m. Pacific Mark Riley is presenting Riley's Cantina along with Sean Healy Productions and myself. It is a live stream from El Cid on Sunset Strip. No one in the audience live. You're going to be the audience at home. Tickets are available anywhere. Just go to TicketWeb.com or a more direct link is go to KenNapsack.com and go to the shows and events page and you will see a link to get tickets. We have general access. We have VIP with an exclusive shirt designed by the great Brian Ward. And that will get you into a live Q&A that we'll be doing right from the venue there. Special guests going to be on the show. Going to be a lot of fun. It's a Star Wars kind of comedy variety hour. And we're looking forward to entertaining you during... uh, Well, dark, dark times. Let's do a little Star Wars comedy there. And uh, if you want, again, go to KenAppsock.com to the shows and events page, a direct link, or just go search TicketWeb.com. All right. That is it for this week. We are out of here. We're uh, going to go to the top of the wall and just uh, stare out at the possibilities that are in front of us. We'll see you next time here on Casterly Talk. (laughs) 